Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you that we continue to worship. We ask you, Holy Spirit, hover over your word. Let it penetrate and burn in our hearts. Healing, restoring, envisioning, encouraging, bringing eternal hope deep within us. We offer ourselves to be gripped by your love. Amen. Amen. How many of you watched the royal wedding last week? You were part of nearly two billion people across the earth that watched it. Why would two billion people almost be so infatuated with a Cinderella who found her prince? And the answer is that God has created within us a longing that's his longing to be part of a romance that utterly satisfies all the other longings of our heart. Look at this. A castle a thousand years old. What a venue for this romance. And then look at this. Ah. Everybody say ah. <laughs> They're in the carriage. The pumpkin has been transformed. And there they are riding, waving to the envy of all the longing souls they passed through. And then finally, the royal kiss. And Megan has been planted into a royal family. She will never be the same. All her needs will be met by the resources of the queen, of the sovereign. She will need for nothing. But the reason that she's been planted is because she's found the heart of the prince. She's got a new name, the Duchess of Sussex. She's got a new residence. And she's got a new lover. And we are planted into eternity by a relationship with an eternal person through accessing his heart and he accessing our heart. We have been planted into a family which we call the church through accessing the head of the church, Jesus, who is a bridegroom king as the head of the church. And when we encounter the heart of somebody, particularly the heart of the eternal God, which is a burning heart, like fire burns, it will cause that heart of yours to burn as well. Because fire is irrepressible in its ability to, what? Reproduce itself. 
It's infectious. And so there's a fascination with this royal wedding uh, across the earth that is a beautiful picture of how we've been planted into an eternal lover. Now, of course, men and women relate differently to the idea of romance. Women, well, my wife, as we watched it for five hours, <laughs> I look across in the corner of my eye and I see, <sighs> she's feeling Megan. She's in Megan's dress. She's crying Megan's tears. She's receiving Harry's kiss. And I'm sitting there with my big belly eating popcorn. Say, so, yeah, I'm just like him. I'm this young soldier, Harry, you know. Oh, yeah. And so romance, male and female, is expressed very differently. But it's the same longing. And it's the same eternal creation by a God who loves romance. The history of God and mankind is a divine romance. And I, when I became a Christian, I obviously was invited into the saviorhood of Jesus. And then when I was quite young, I got this disease. Uh, what was it called, Penny? You know, when it goes shingles. It's all around my tummy, these little bumps. Thing. I was just a young guy. And I couldn't bear the shirt to touch my skin. It was so painful. And a lady came and she prayed for me. And I was instantly healed. I felt the band of warmth go around my, my stomach. And I looked down and all the spots had gone. And the pain had gone. That lady was actually Corrie Ten Boom. And she just prayed for me. And I mean, I just, boom. So I became, I experienced Jesus now, not just as a savior, but as a healer. And then there was some demonic activity and pressures and temptations in my life. And somebody prayed for me again. I knew him as a deliverer. And one day somebody challenged me and said, you know, if he's not Lord of your life, he's not Lord of all. He's not Lord at all. And I'd never considered that I was to yield everything to God. There were some areas that even now I still struggle yielding and giving over to. But... If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all, was the little phrase. And so now I began to relate to Jesus as the Lord. Progressive revelation of Jesus. Aren't you grateful for that? See, a paradigm is a lens through which you see life. It's a, it's a pair of glasses... And depending upon the glasses, the paradigm, so you are enlarged in your revelation of your world. And so my paradigm changed as God graciously gave me increased understanding of his personhood and of his beauty. But I'd never considered God as a lover. I was in the army. I was in special forces. I was this romping, stomping, airborne, dynamic hell. And so romance, flowers, dresses, 
That didn't fit with my paradigm of Jesus. I like Jesus as the commander-in-chief. I like Jesus as the returning one to banish all the nations and rule them with an iron fist. But some years ago, I got a new paradigm of Jesus, which changed the very chemistry of my heart. I saw him as a lover, as a bridegroom. And then I began to examine the scriptures. And all the way through the scriptures, I began to see. You know, it's interesting when you see something new about Jesus and you begin to examine the word of God. It's suddenly popping out everywhere. You can't see anything else because your paradigm has changed. I began to see him as, as this returning lover. I began to see that right at the beginning and in the middle and at the end, it's all about this divine romance. And my heart was changed. The very chemistry of my heart began to change. Uh, in the beginning... We see a love story commencing between a God who walks in the garden. Genesis 2. You might like to just look at it. Genesis 2 and verse 18 through 20. The Lord God said it's not good for the man to be alone. And that was not because God was not sufficient. And, and Adam is saying, oh, I'm so lonely. How could you be lonely walking in the garden with God? Wouldn't that be sufficient? Listen, you don't have to be married to be fulfilled. And so when he says it's not good for man to be alone, it's because there was another purpose in God's heart, which we shall see. I'll make a helper suited for him. This is not like hamburger helper. There's no wife is not a hamburger helper. It means literally in the Hebrew there, it means a savior to him. So Penny is, in some respects, a savior to my life. And that's certainly true if you would know the passage of our marriage. She is the better half. But she's not helper, hamburger helper. She's not that. She's not this, you know, she's got smaller feet so she can stand closer to the sink. God forbid. I'm sorry that you laughed at that. You should have shrieked with agony. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. Isn't that amazing? And he brought them to the man to see what he, Adam, would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Johnny, come and help me a minute. Son of Adam, come. Well, just stretch your imagination really hard right now, and I'm the father with the son. And the Bible says that Adam and God walked in the cool of the day. I think that was morning, not necessarily evening. And as they walk, the Hebrew word walked in the garden means to walk to and fro. So they walked to and fro throughout the day. And initially, the purpose of the walk is not to get to somewhere. The purpose of the walk is relationship. Before ever God calls you to some purpose in the kingdom, it's coming out of a relationship. 
a divine romance, I'm suggesting. What do you think of these flowers? Beautiful. <laughs> smell that rose. Mm. Ah, it's good to have time to smell the roses. Mm. You know, I made all this for you. You were the apex of my creation. I love you so much. I'm so proud of you. You know, I've got this longing. I love you so much. I want to fill the whole garden with more Adams. What do you think of that? <laughs> In fact, we'll go out along four rivers and spread the whole earth with men made in the image of me so that I can enjoy them enjoying me and the whole earth is filled with my glory. Come on. <laughs> and as they walked in the garden, God gave Adam the responsibility of naming the animals, which means he had a brilliant intellect. Adam sees these great massive thing come towards him. He said, that's an elephant. And at sunset, as he watched Mummy Elephant and Daddy Elephant go trunk in trunk towards the jungle, he felt this longing. Ah. He looked at the giraffe. He said, you're a giraffe. And as, they, as he watched them at sunset with their necks entwined around each other, he said, oh, I don't think I could marry one of those because I'd have to climb up so high to kiss her. <laughs> As for the elephant, if he, she rolled over in bed one night, I don't know where I'd be. And then he looked at the orangutan. He said, it's getting closer. <laughs> but her lips would swallow me. And so God... As he's walking with him, Adam says, well, this longing I have, it, I have this longing in my heart for a, a helpmeet. God created, oh, you created it in me. So it says that God took Adam and he put him into a deep sleep. A deep sleep. <laughs> and then he says, and God took out of the side of Adam a helpmeet, an Eve. She was called Ish-Shish, taken out of the side of man to be put back into and give him a side that he needed, which was called the female. Come, Melanie. And after three days, as God is forming this beauty from his side. Out of his deep sleep, he hears a voice. <laughs> wake up, Adam! Wake up, Adam! Wake up, Adam! Wake up, Adam! <laughs> and the Bible says that when he saw her, he said, and literally the Hebrew is, wow, this is it! Wow, this is it! <laughs> <laughs> sit down, thank you. And in his beauty, when you see beauty, it caused him to prophesy. 
He said, not only this is it, but he said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. How did he know that? He'd been in an anesthetic. How did he know it was bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh that out of his very side God had taken Eve? Well, because when you see beauty that raptures you, that captures you, you can't help but prophesy it. Incredible. What a tragedy that just a few verses later, when God confronts him with his sin, he says, yeah, it was that woman you gave me. So this divine longing is aroused. And out of his side comes this beauty. See, Hollywood has captured the romance story of the Bible and abused it. But there's a story which is this divine romance that, you know, I mean, you remember the movie, The Titanic? Do you remember? What was The Titanic about? Mary, what was The Titanic about? No, it wasn't. It was a ship that hit, a, it hit an iceberg, remember? No, no. no. It was an excuse for Romeo and Juliet. Wasn't it? Braveheart. Some Scottish pioneer. No, it was a romance. Shrek. It's the same story. It's Romeo and Juliet. Again, we, we love it. And we relate to it differently as male and female. This is the story. There's a beautiful woman. And there's a wicked king. He grabs the beautiful woman. And he locks her in Windsor Castle. She's captured there. She leans out of the top of the turret with weeping eyes. She cries, who will save me? Who will save me? And there's a fine prince on a white horse riding by. This is the story. He says, I will save you. He throws up a rope. He climbs up the rope. He gets the beautiful maiden. And she goes, oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. But out comes the wicked king. He confronts the prince who draws out his sword and he kills the wicked, the wicked king. And everybody claps and the maiden and her prince savior ride off into the sunset happy ever after. Well, there is a wicked king. And there is a prince from heaven. And he slew the wicked king at Calvary. And out of his side, John 19, 34. Out of his side, the Bible says, when the soldier thrust the spear into the side of Jesus at the cross, there flowed out suddenly water and blood. Those two proving that he was dead. But they symbolized blood to redeem the bride. Out of his side. And water to cleanse her so that she would ultimately be this church bride without spot, without wrinkle, in perfection, awaiting and longing for the returning bridegroom king. 
you're a part of that. We, as the redeemed, are called the bride of Christ. And so in the beginning was this, this amazing start of beauty that was so joyful. Disaster from the fall, which was so tragic. And now the triumph of the cross and its resurrection to bring us back into victory. And all the way through the Bible, as I began to examine it for a number of years, I began to see this recurring divine romance all the way through. So, that, for example, in Matthew 21, there's the parable, the last public parable that Jesus taught was about a father preparing a wedding for his son. Remember that one? Matthew 25 was the last private parable that Jesus gave, and it's, it's all about five foolish and five wise virgins, remember, preparing for the returning of their bridegroom king. The last parables. And then all the way through, I find this constant theme recurring. Paul crying out, he says, my longing, my heart, he said, I'm longing to bring you as a mature bride ready for her bridegroom. The whole apostolic mandate was about bridal perfection. And in the middle, just, just look at this for me. Uh, in Song of Songs, chapter 5, and verse 8 and 9. To, to give you the setting of this, it's so powerful. She's, she's growing in her journey of this divine romance. The whole book, the eight songs, are about the maturing of divine love in her heart. It's a beautiful picture, personally, or of marriage, or of the church, whichever one you choose. And so here she is. She's, she's, a, she's asleep. And the bridegroom comes to waken her. And she's a, the previous verse, she's a little slow getting out of bed. Can you relate to that? She hears his knock. She says, I know I ought to get up. I'm sleepy. So she doesn't. So when finally she gets up, she opens the door, and she smells his, his aftershave, but he's gone. She goes, ah, panic. And sometimes God deliberately draws away from us to draw us out. And he makes use of our lack of passion to recreate it again. So here she is hugging her hot water bottle, and now she goes to the door, and he's gone, and she's going, oh, and she rushes out into the streets to look for him. When I was a, a soldier, I learned how to eat my food really quick. Like, 26 seconds, a whole plate of food was gone. That's what you had to do. Right, Hadrian? So Hadrian was a Marine. They were our... Um, they were our natural enemies because I was in the paratroop regiment and the Marines were, they wore a green beret which is very inferior to the red beret and <laughs> I've got the microphone so you can't argue. <laughs> I remember when I was falling in love with Penny, uh, I was at home. Now my mother was an excellent cook. Uh, you may think that your mother was the best cook in the world but actually mine was. 
She was incredible cook, and she had prepared this meal for me, and I'm in love. And I'm sort of picking on my food. If you could bring that scripture back up again, Song of Songs 5, 8. And I'm picking at the food, and she says, she says, what's wrong with you? You're eating your food so slowly. Is there something wrong with the food? Is there something? Oh, 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 no, of course. Oh, you're lovesick. You're sick with love. You got sick. Are you sick? You're sick? Yes, I'm sick. I'm sick with love. And that's the effect that has upon this you when Jesus, in his wisdom, withdraws to draw out your heart. Haven't you noticed that sometimes you think, oh, I feel so dead. I feel so heavy. I feel so, what's wrong with me? Oh, I need to go back to God. I need to have some time with God. I've neglected my time with God. I need to get back into the river of his romance again and get refreshed. You can experience that. I need that every day. I don't know about you. I find every day I need that encouragement. And so she goes down, she goes down and she says, look, tell him I am faint with love. She rushes out into Jerusalem and she goes searching for her bridegroom and she says to her friends, her lady friends, listen, if you find the one I love, tell him I'm lovesick. What an offer God gives us. We're so engaged with so many concepts and ideas and paradigms of our relationship with God. But the central one, the main one, is it's possible to become sick with love. Would you like that? Because if I'm sick with love, that transforms every other area of my life. And what does love sickness look like? Oh. I remember we, we, we were out in London we looking at a table and the waiter brings us, you know, a glass of some liquid and I'm gazing across the table. <gasps> you don't have to say words. We're just speaking through eyes. And she's there. <sighs> and the waiter comes and says, can I bring you anything else? We haven't touched the glasses. We're just engaged in lovesickness. And, of course, you mature and lose that after 50 years of marriage. No, 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 this is an engagement. It changes, but the leaves grow very beautiful towards fall. So if you find him, tell him, I, I'm sick with love. And so, so these maidens that she's speaking to, her friends, say, What? You found a man that makes you sick with love? We haven't got a lover like that. Look what it says. How is your beloved better than ours? See, there are so many loves in our life. The danger is that the other loves exclude the main love who is the one who can most passionately fulfill our desires. And so we get caught up on the altar we sacrifice on the altar of short-term pleasures, short-term lovers that don't satisfy long-term. And the answer is, burn them. What has your lover got that our lover doesn't have? You know how ladies, teenagers sometimes, you would understand this, Simon. You know, men do it as well, teenagers. They say, huh, who were you with last night then? Huh? Oh, let me tell you. We exaggerate as men. It's worldly. And the ladies do the same thing. <laughs> he kissed me last night. Really? On the lips? Not telling. 
and they're provoked by this, this woman that comes. They're provoked that she says, this lover has made me sick with love. They, they're jealous. They're provoked to jealousy. They say, what? Has he got a brother? <laughs> See, evangelism is not a program. When we got married, we, we were going to the honeymoon, and we stopped off for a little cup of tea, which English people do have to do at age about 4 p.m. I go into the restaurant. Says, Can I help you? Can I seat you? Says the waiter. Yes, please. My wife and I. This is my wife. He looks at me like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> no, no, no. This is, we just got married. Look, the confetti's still on us. I'm so, so filled, so lovesick. I want everybody to meet this bride. You see, if the church were to focus on this, the main thing, not the only thing, but the main thing, evangelism would not be a problem. I'm sitting in Starbucks. Oh, what are you looking so happy about? Oh, let me tell you. I got this person I'm passionate about. His name is Jesus. I'm lovesick. You ever heard of that phrase before? You look pretty miserable. You look like you could take a, you know, you know, you could take a drink of this mead. And so I think the challenge for us is, is developing this relationship and walking to and fro in the garden so that our life is a natural flow, an overflow, if you will. And I've found in my life I've had to keep changing and, and coming back to the main thing. And, and really at the end of the romance, the end of the story is another garden. Dan quoted Revelation twenty two seventeen last week. He said, the spirit and the bride say, come. It's the last prayer of the whole Bible. Do you pray it? I mean... When I'm really having a bad day, I say, oh, God, the spirit, the bride say, come, come, Lord Jesus, will you come? But that's not the best motive. The best motive is, oh, God, I really have an encounter with a lover, and I, I am longing for your coming. Would you come? And there's coming a day when every town and village and city and nation will have a representative of a people who, whose main characteristic are they're passionately in love with God. There is some distance that we have to travel yet for the church to be transformed into that paradigm. But it will happen without spot, without wrinkle, without disunity, unity with uniformity, with difference, a church that's not squabbling, that's not jealous. I appreciated talking to a man who's here amongst us this morning who's a pastor of a mega church. And um, I said to you, so happy that you would come into a little church like ours? He says, there's only one church. A church which is infatuated with Jesus that can endure martyrdom. You don't die. I mean, What's the name of the Chicago, you know, is it the, the Bulls or something like that? Is it the Chicago Sox, White Sox, Bulls? What, what is it? Well, it's the Cub, Cubs. Yeah, we see. see, I don't know a great deal about the Cubs. I'm sorry, I apologize to you. 
Ask me about cricket or rugby, I can give you some answers. Or football. I know Liverpool lost, lost over the weekend. But if you came to me with a pistol in your hand, you say, give up the white socks or I'll blow your brains out. I said, fine, no problem. Because I don't love the white socks. What is a church going to look like where there's massive, huge revival in the midst of persecution? You don't die for something you don't believe in. You wouldn't give your life for a person that you didn't care about. And so what God is going to wonderfully do by his spirit, he's going to increasingly transform the church into lovers of him so that we can love one another. I can't love you if I haven't got the resource from God himself. It's just pretense. It's just, how are you today? Fine, how are you today? I'm doing my Christian duty. Smile. I want something that's more authentic and real than that, that only comes from the development of a relationship in the divine romance. And God offers it for us, and he will do it. He will produce it. And Dan also quoted Revelation 19, verse 7, where he says, the bride has made herself ready. You see, the real source of joy and glory is in the context of preparedness for the coming of the king. There's a very interesting scripture that's provoking me to death at the moment. It's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. Just, just look at this. I, am so, I don't know whether it's because I'm getting older and I'm getting nearer to death, how many of you are getting older and nearer to death? You should all put your hand up, yes. But some of us are nearer there than others. But look at this. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, to, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, I don't know about you, but when somebody says to me, oh, I pity you, I say, what do you mean you pity me? It's offensive to me. I get offended by that. Wouldn't you get offended? Oh, Mary, I really pity you. you, you, you what do you mean you pity me? Now, what the Scripture is saying here is, if our blessed hope is only limited to a hope of things in this world, in this age, in this life, you're to be pitied. Why? Because you don't see the incredible plan and the incredible promise of the inheritance of the life after you go through. Well, do you ever consider what that life is like? Have you ever considered what a new body is going to be like? Have you considered what your role might be in the next age? Have you wondered, what will St. Charles look like in the next age? What will it be like? Who are the three people you most want to talk to when you sit down and you've gone through death into life everlasting? Who do you want to visit with? What place would you like to go to? Well, I'm to be most pitied if I've never given that any thought. Because there's a, a feast out there that Aslan has prepared and he shook his mane and given us revelation. Read the last, the last battle of Narnia, the last four chapters, and you'll see what I'm saying. It'll open your eyes to this divine romance which is eternal. 
What does it mean that there's no more marriage? I don't like that. I've been married 51 years this year, and I don't like the thought that in the next age, I'm not going to have a wife. But you see, the atmosphere of this age, the happiness, the fulfillment, this will pleasure some of you that are divorced or single still, the atmosphere of heaven is like so intensely happy, so intensely fulfilling that you look back at marriage and you go, Sex, not that we despise that, marriage, I mean, but that in comparison to what I'm now experiencing with this God, in this new world, in this new age, which is eternal, this bit is the classroom these 70 or so years for the preparation of the great thing. When the bride has made herself ready, it's not just for the wedding, it's for eternity. I want to encourage you. Start to enlarge your blessed hope because it creates perseverance in you. C.S. Lewis said this. Amazing. He said, your revelation of the future age is directly correlated to your fruitfulness in this one. In other words, the greater my understanding of this eternal hope, this blessed hope is, the greater and the more impact I would have in this age. Of course, that's true, isn't it? You're far more motivated. You're far, far more alerted to the urgency of the age. You're far, more, um, you're far more likely to devote yourself to prayer and to worship. And you're far more likely to feel the agony of the loss and the excitement of the gain. And so at the end, it's, it's the, it's the same story. Revelation 2, 4 and 5 is the last scripture. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. That you have tasted those who claim to be apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. You've persevered, and you've endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary. It's all good. Yet, I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Hmm. So what happens is, we get into this romance, and then we get busy in the kitchen. I'm saying, let's go back to the bedroom. Everybody loves the bedroom. Would you stand with me? I'm inviting you to repent, which is a very positive action of the human heart. It's mainly this. It's changing my mind about my paradigm. I'm asking you to return to your first love. I'm asking you to cry out with all your heart. Whatever's touched you in your heart this morning, one little phrase maybe. One little scripture. Say, oh God, enlarge the capacity of my heart to not only see but to cultivate this relationship with such a magnificent, loving God. David said this, I will lift up my heart on my hands. I invite you to do that right now. Here's my heart. Engage my heart. Warm my heart. Burn in my heart. 
I repent of neglecting my heart. Above all things, guard your heart, for from it flow the very issues of life. So here's my heart, Lord Jesus. My heart, Lord. Give the picture in my mind of a broken, a broken drawing and restore it with your love. Let love touch my body and heal me. Let love touch my mind and transform me. Let love capture my imagination and excite me. Let love drain and soak over me, O oh God, that I might live through my world in love sickness. That I might find this utter satisfaction that you hold out and promise to me, Lord Jesus. 